It is a blessing to be able to share. I do want to just take a moment and say uh, um, I love hearing my wife sing. Just wanted to, thought I'd share that with you this morning. I also, uh, I was thinking about it this week. It didn't really click last Sunday, but for our sunrise service, that was the first time that I've ever had my son lead the worship and then me be the one speaking afterwards. And what an incredible honor it is for me to have that. So it is great to have you with us today. And as we dig into God's Word today, I want to uh, just prepare you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so you can go ahead and turn there already. It has been said that there is no such thing as a perfect church. I've also heard it said that if you do find a perfect church... You better leave quickly because you're about to ruin their perfection with your imperfection. The fact is that the church has its flaws. There is coming a day when the church will be made perfect, but it hasn't happened yet. Perhaps a part of that is because of the imperfect world in which we live. Ours is a society that is devoted to sensualism and pleasure where hardly any sexual deviation is too extreme to be censored or forbidden. In essence, sex sells. To help illustrate this, let me share with you regarding a television, an educational television show that I watched this week. It was about the pollination process involving flowers and butterflies and bees. And as they talked about this, they described it as the sexual needs of the flower being met. Come on, it is a flower. There's nothing sexual about it. It is a flower. Yet there is this idea that if we make it sound inappropriate, someone will like it. It is also an information-oriented society in which we live devoted to the rapid transmission of endless analysis of events, ideas, and philosophies. Not really sure whether we can trust what we read on social media or the fake news media either. It sounds a lot about an accurate description of America, but it is also a great description of the city of Corinth in the first century. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is, is important and extremely relevant to us today because of the fact that it so accurate, accurately captures the problems that we face as Christians living in a postmodern, even post-Christian era today. An age of division and politics and rampant prostitution, easily accessible pornography, and even division over basic human rights. Of all the cities we find in the New Testament, Corinth is the most typically American. It was a resort city, the capital of pleasure-seeking in the Roman Empire. Located on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, Corinth was a beautiful city of palms and magnificent buildings. Corinth was a gathering place for great thinkers and speakers of Greece, they would come together in the public forums and talk endlessly about various ideas and issues from politics to philosophy, from economics to metaphysics, from entertainment to morality. Today we call that the internet. They were the low-tech forerunners of our mass media and internet talking heads. The city of Corinth was the cultural heir of the great thinkers of the golden age of Greece like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all 
they all had their devoted followers there in Corinth. But this was also a city that was dedicated, devoted to the goddess of sex. In fact, there was a temple dedicated to the Greek goddess of love, Aphrodite. And part of the worship of this Greek goddess was the performance of certain religious ceremonies involving sexual activity. The priestesses of this temple were actually prostitutes, and some 10,000 of them served in the temple. No doubt this was a city that was openly proud of their unrestrained sexual freedom. It is in this environment that the Apostle Paul would be called to plant a church, spending about a year and a half preaching the gospel and making tents for a living. After leading two individuals, Priscilla and Aquila, to faith, he would plant the church in their home, and the gospel would immediately begin to spread throughout the city. Many Corinthians would believe and would be baptized, but this was far from being a perfect church, even though as we read those verses from 4 through 9, it sounds like a perfect church. As Paul sends this letter to the Corinthian church, he begins with a celebration of what is going right in the church. They already know about the sinfulness of their city. They already know that there are probably things that need to change within the church as well. But he starts with what's right. By the way, it's interesting to note the format that Paul uses here is very similar to the format that Jesus would use in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 as he sends seven letters to seven different churches, and he begins each one with a word of commendation. You are doing these things very well. And then there's this phrase, yet nevertheless, which means although I celebrate the good that is there, there are some things that need to be corrected. There is a sense of encouragement which is necessary, often even in correction. It's like a parent who does nothing but discipline their children, constantly rebuking them, yet never building them up. What will happen is if we do that, we will raise children that are defeated already. They need to hear the good along with the bad. But Paul begins with a celebration of God's work in the lives of the Corinthian church. I'm going to read the same verses I read to you already. I want to read them to you again, and then a little bit later we'll progress through the passage. It says this, beginning in verse 4. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What an incredible endorsement this is upon the church. He thanks God for them, aware of God's grace that is continually being poured out upon them. They are intelligent, they speak well, they lack no spiritual gift, and God has promised he will keep them firm until the very end, even using the word blameless. For they have been called into fellowship with Christ. What an incredible endorsement of what's happening or has already happened within this particular local church. 
they apparently are a church that is fully devoted to Christ. It's interesting that Paul would use that word blameless. I mentioned it earlier. It's the same word that is used when Paul addresses the church in Ephesians chapter 5. He's talking about the sacrificial love that Christ has for the church, and he's calling husbands to live up to that same standard in the way they love their wives. He says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. There's no doubt that we could never be holy and blameless on our own. But it would seem that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross makes such a description possible for the body of Christ. We are to become radiant, without stain, without wrinkle, or any other blemish, to become holy and blameless. Well, I told you earlier that I have yet to find a perfect church. I'm actually not all that hopeful to find one in the immediate future. That's because we are filled as churches with imperfect people. But I know this. We are to continually strive toward the perfection that God himself offers. But it doesn't happen because the pastor says that it's going to happen. It happens because the people individually choose to do their part in seeking holiness and sharing that holiness with other people. My question to begin with today is will you do your part I love the idea of the church becoming holy and blameless, but it won't happen because I said it's going to happen. It is going to happen because the people of God choose to live like the people of God, allowing the Spirit of God to flow in them and out of them. But when that happens, the church truly can become a reflection of who God is. I've had the privilege of serving in some incredible churches over the years. And along with that, I've had the privilege of working with some great people. As I read through the list of descriptors, descriptors that Paul gives in our passage, my mind goes back to some of those people, seeing struggles that they have faced, seeing them go from spiritual brokenness to spiritual wholeness, knowing the difference that these individuals are making for the kingdom today. And this includes many who are even in this particular church. My thought is the same as the Apostle Paul. I always thank my God for you because of his grace that is given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. Think for a minute about where God has taken you, where you were, and how he took you from that brokenness and brought you to a place of wholeness and healing. All kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge you have it. God thus confirms our testimony about Christ among you. Well, even though we see a church that is fully devoted to Christ here in those first few verses... 
the truth is that the humanity and the imperfection of these people is still on display. Look at the, the next few verses, verses 10 through 17 in this passage. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. They are apparently not only a church that is devoted to Christ, but they are also a church that is divided. In this case, they're fighting over petty things. Our church has been blessed with an incredible history of some really great pastors and preachers. In fact, it is not lost on me that without the foundation that has been laid already, without many of these great preachers and pastors, the ministry that I do would not be possible today. But I want you to know that it doesn't hurt my feelings if you like Pastor Don more than me. Or if you like Pastor Wiggins more than me. Or if you like Pastor whomever more than me. It doesn't even hurt my feelings if you like Pastor Lee or any of the other staff more than me. In fact, I see this whole thing as being like a relay race. Some run longer than others. Some run faster than others. Some faced obstacles that others may not have to face, but all run with the same purpose. I will guarantee you that the heart of those pastors who came before me was to point people to Jesus Christ. And I'm absolutely certain that the heart of our staff is solely to point people to Jesus Christ. And that is also my heart today. If your connection to any one of these individuals causes you to more intimately pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ, then go for it. But don't fight over which one is better. The truth is that we will continually be handing off the baton from one to the next. There will come a day when I will no longer be the pastor at this church, and I hope it's a long way off. But when that day comes... I want you to continue to run the race that God has marked out for you. Not comparing me to the next guy or the guy who was before me or the guy who comes after them. You know, even in a church that is growing and reaching all kinds of people, even in a church with a dynamic preacher who fears God, there will be times of division. I'm talking about the church in Acts chapter 15. Before you assume, are oh, you just talking about yourself in the church? No, that's not what we're talking about. They were making disciples. 
They were making a difference. This is the early days of the church. You're talking about a, a time period where they would preach and literally thousands of people would come to faith in Jesus Christ in a day. There's a great reason to celebrate what was happening in the church. The Apostle Paul was preaching the good news, and not only were Jews giving their hearts to Christ, but Gentiles were too. This was new to the church because originally it was just really reserved for the Jews, at least that's what they thought. But the Gentiles were coming to Christ too. But with this evangelistic success came new problems, specifically over the issue of circumcision. Circumcision was a symbol of the Jewish people belonging to God. Could a Gentile believer truly belong to God if he too were not circumcised? Look what it says in Acts 15 beginning in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Let me just stop for a minute before I read the rest of that. At what point did you hear Jesus say that? This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. The first thing that I want to point out from this is the intention of these Jewish believers is not to be unfair to these new Gentile believers. They simply want them to honor God and to experience the same sense of belonging to God as the Jewish believers do. They don't want a half-hearted devotion from these new believers. They want to make sure that they are all in. That is truly a genuinely noble goal. I've looked at the church, and at times I wonder if our expectation upon new believers is that they will look exactly as we have. I've been a pastor now for 25 years. And the truth is, the church has changed over the years. I have no disagreement with that. I see some of our new believers, and truthfully, I kind of wonder if maybe they're cheating themselves sometimes. But I also wonder if sometimes... I wonder if sometimes my expectation for them to look exactly like me has gotten in the way of God's expectation of them to look exactly like Him. What was happening here where there were Jews who wanted so much for the Gentiles to look just like them, and Jesus was the one who was saying, I want them to look like me instead. Paul sees things differently. It's not that Paul wants to water down their faith or for them to be less committed to it. He absolutely wants their full devotion to Christ. He models it for them, what it should look like. But what he also wants for the people to see is that God was more concerned with the people being circumcised in their heart rather than in their flesh. 
God desires to cut away all the things that don't belong in their lives. And He wants to do the same thing in us. Causing us to seek Him with all that we have. And completely allowing all those other things to die out. But circumcision of the flesh is not required to make that happen. I also find this passage just a little bit here in Acts 15 a little bit humorous. I can't tell if Paul and Barnabas are being sent to legitimately ask the elders, Paul and John and or Peter and John and all these guys, I can't tell if they're sending them to legitimately ask, hey, how should we handle this? Or if they're being sent to the principal's office. We're going to send you up to the apostles and we're going to let them tell you how you should handle this. Although there are dissenting voices in verse 5, I love the fact that as the apostles hear what is happening, as the believers hear what is happening, they do nothing more than rejoice. They celebrate this work that is being done. People, both Jews and Gentiles, are believing in Christ. The passage says that this news made all the believers very glad. The point is that you have a growing church with good leaders, yet division still occurs. Sometimes it's because of nothing more than differing opinions. Did you know that you can still be godly and not agree on everything? But know this, there are certain things that we absolutely must be united on. There are certain things that are not even up for discussion. We must be united upon the role of Christ in our salvation. Jesus Christ said, I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You can argue all kinds of other things. You can disagree with the people sitting beside you on many other things, but we must be united on the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. We must be united on the need for repentance. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked and seek my face and then turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. We must be united on this call to repent, to turn from our wicked ways and to go a different direction. That is not up for discussion. We must be united on the need for God's people to become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, lovingly bringing the hope of redemption to an enslaved world. We may disagree on many things, but there are some things we must be united on. And this brings us to my final point this morning. We see in this passage a church that is devoted to God. We see a church that is divided over petty things. Yet we also see a church that is victorious in spite of everything. It says in verse 18 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, we are different from them, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, this new church 
was experiencing the power of God as real and transforming. This was not some hypothetical idea. This was not some theological argument. They were experiencing the power of God firsthand in their lives. Maybe this whole story of the cross doesn't make much sense to most people, but to us, we know that the cross changes everything. That's what Paul talks about as he writes to this same devoted and divided church in his second letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. We are broken and defeated people. At least that's what we were. Yet God has now allowed us the privilege of spreading the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. That is because we are the pleasing aroma of Christ in our world. To those who choose not to believe, that aroma will be the smell of death. It is incredibly unpleasant, disgusting. Nobody wants to be around it. But to those who choose to believe, we bring the aroma of life. My hope for this church is that we will be the pleasing aroma of Christ in our world. When the church is truly the aroma of Christ to a world around us that they genuinely are open to the leading of the Spirit, we ought to be the church that brings them life. Do you know the difference between the two? You know in the dead of winter when you're tired of the fact that it's cold and all the leaves have been off the trees for months. When you haven't seen a flower anywhere in months. And all of a sudden, spring breaks. In our case, three or four times because we get that really warm weather and then back to ice cold and then warm again. But all of a sudden, spring breaks. And you look out and you see that flower budding and you look and you think, finally, that ought to be the body of Christ being the aroma of Christ to a world that needs to know that there is life that is available to them. I believe that God wants to do that through our church, but he also requires that it not just be the organization of the church that makes that happen. It must be the individuals who will become the aroma of Christ to those around us. I'm not telling you that everyone will rejoice over you being the aroma of Christ. There are some that cannot stand to be around those who are righteous and holy. And I get that 100%. John chapter 3 tells us that many will not come into the light for fear that their sins might be exposed, that it would be revealed. I recognize there are many who will not want the aroma of Christ, and for them it will be an aroma of death. 
But how will you know what type of aroma you bring until you bring that aroma and discover the impact that it could make in their lives? I believe today that God desires to change this community, but he desires first to change us so that we will truly bring the aroma of life to them. I'm going to ask everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we cannot say thank you enough for the hope that we have in you. Lord, we come recognizing that you have reached into our lives and you have given us incredible grace, much like the church in Corinth. All of the filth of the world, all of the sins that existed and dominated their culture, it would have been easy for them to simply become a reflection of that culture. Yet you called them out of that. And in doing so, they became a church that was devoted to you, still with imperfections, still with their petty differences that sometimes got in the way. But they were a church that truly wanted to reflect you. Lord, my prayer is that we would be a church much like that. I pray for each individual in here that you would make us a people like that. I pray that you would cause us every day to reflect on the presence of your Holy Spirit in us and to allow you to be the one to drive the ship in our lives, to make sure that as we walk this journey, we do not walk it for our own satisfaction or for our own petty plans. But I pray that we would walk in a way that honors your almighty plan. Lord, I pray today that you would have your way in us as individuals. May we be able to walk in the very same victory that this church would walk in. May we know that this message of the cross is not foolishness, but it is the power of God to change people's lives. May we be a testimony to that power. Father, we praise you for your grace and for your mercy. We ask that you would use us, work in us, do whatever you see fit to do. Lord, may you be honored in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.